0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Liset Barón-Carvajal. Today, I will be talking to Drs. Erika Ball, Tatiana Sejas, and Terry Snyder about their beautiful edited collection, As If She Were Free, a collective biography of women and emancipation in the Americas, published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. Welcome, Erika, Tatiana, and Terry. I'm so excited to have you today. Thank you for having us. Thank you for being here. (laughs) Um, So let's let us start by talking about each of your personal trajectories. Our listeners would love to hear more about why you decided to study history, where you're currently teaching and how you came to your chosen region of study and your particular research interests. Tell us more, please.
1: Um, uh, thank you, uh, Lisette. Uh, my name is Erica Ball and I am currently the Mary Jane Hewitt chair in, uh, uh department chair in Black studies at, at Occidental College. And, um, uh, how did I become a historian? That's a big question. Um, um, and it, it seems like i've I've been one for for so long but um but I have to um I have to say that that the idea the seed was first planted in college um I didn't really know that this was something a person could do um but I found that this was the kind of work that, that interested me most and inspired me most. And after graduating and taking a little time off, I decided to, to pursue graduate studies. And, and I'm currently a, a specialist in 19th and 20th century African-American cultural history. And I, I focus on the ways that African-Americans in the United States have used um, expressive culture, dress, literature, music, Performance to and and place that in the service of the the long freedom struggle.
2: I think I'm next. My name is Tatiana Seijas. I am associate professor of history at Rutgers University, and I've always loved history. I grew up in a city, Puebla, in Mexico, that is very old. It was, you know, first founded in the 1530s. So growing up, I. Surrounded by very old buildings and heard stories from my family members, my mother, and my grandmother. And as, as soon as I started to read, all I could read were, was history. So I went to, I went to college and I, and I took every history class that was offered. <laughs> and I loved learning about the past as it occurred in so many different places. And after college, I decided that maybe I was going to be a librarian, (laughs) thinking that I wanted to be surrounded by books. But then in my heart, I knew that I, I had to become a historian. So I went back to grad school, and here I am, still thinking about history happening all over the world. I do like that kind of global perspective. And that's me.
3: Thank you, Lisette. I'm Terry Snyder. I'm Chair and Professor of American Studies at California State University, Fullerton. I'm actually a first-generation college student uh, and the first person in my family to go to college. My older brother went, but he went after me. Um, And I had great history teachers in high school, but it was really a class in general education in the humanities in college, that opened up this world to me that I didn't I didn't know existed. Um, I went on to take classes in early American literature. And the, the the study of early British North America really lit me up. At the same time I was working in feminist healthcare. I was pretty active in feminist causes when I was an undergraduate. Um, and so I ended up kind of marrying my interests in feminism and history to become a legal historian of early America, early British North America. And that that interest actually was manifested in my first writings uh, as a graduate student and and early in my career and um, shows up in this book still today.
0: I love to hear about um, authors' trajectories and I, I believe the book is enriched by all of your different specializations and interests. And we're going to talk more about that later. But for now, just let's talk about um, how did you come together to edit this book? Where did this idea come from? And what were the reasons that encouraged you to edit uh, this particular book, which is a beautiful book for our listeners. I recommend them to to go and buy it and check it out. Uh, so why why did you decide to do this in the form of a collective biography?
2: So I'll start by kind of um, giving a little story of how we came together. I have to say that it was Terry who brought us together. Terry knew me (laughs) and Terry knew Erica, um, but I didn't know Erica until this project. And I still haven't met Erica except (laughs) on the screen. (laughs) One day I will hug you in person. (laughs) Um, And I didn't know Terry either, uh, but I did meet her along the way. I only knew her through email. So I think Terry and Erica had already been talking about doing a project together to highlight new work um, by women historians working on the experience of, of African descended women. And Terry and I had been kind of having a side conversation via email about all the new work that we were seeing kind of across the hemisphere of historians coming to this topic and doing really interesting work um, based on innovative reading of different kinds of sources. So I think Terry got us all together and um, we we met on Skype, which now is this old-fashioned thing, but it served us really well for about two years. We regularly met on Skype. And on Skype, um, we kind of talked out um, what we were going to do, if this was feasible. And then we started drawing up a book proposal and also contacting our colleagues to see who would want to join us. So that was kind of how it all got started. Yeah. Um,
1: and and I'll just I'll add that uh, all all three of us were, you know, we had our, our areas of, of expertise, expertise, um, We worked on our own kind of regions and 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 time periods, and we all were all three of us were inspired by this this new work that we were seeing really exciting work um, about uh, slavery and women of African descent, Indigenous women. But we were also very aware of the fact that we all tended to uh, to a greater or lesser extent, I suspect, but but. There's a tendency to kind of be be siloed in our in in our own areas. So so the scholarship didn't necessarily speak uh, across uh, time and space um, as as well as we would like it to. Um, and so we we also wanted to to maybe put some of these these wonderful scholars that we were each seeing in our own areas in in conversation with the with each other more more directly and more more intentionally.
3: And I'll take on the question of why we decided on the form of collective biography. It's not an obvious form, and it wasn't to us when we began having conversations with one another. We were aware that there were some, at that point, there were some very important biographies emerging. I'm thinking of Erica Armstrong Dunbar's Never Caught. As a model. But there were also, as Tatiana said earlier, amazing new histories of women across the Americas. Michelle McKinley's book on women and legal claims in early Peru. So as we thought about and came together in conversation with how we could do a hemispheric history of women, we came upon the idea of biographies. And partly I think Erica was working on a biography, I'm working on a biography. And then after some research, discovered that a collective biography is a really old form. It emerged in the 19th century, often used by women to sort of recount and capture the lives of multiple women. And Hallie Quinn Brown, for instance, African-American scholar and activist, published a collective biography called Homespun Heroines in 1926. So once we, we understood there was this form, we thought, this is the way to bring together our interests and use chapters to explore the lives of individual women across the American hemisphere.
0: Yeah, I love it. And I think it's so effective to what you're trying to do in the book. It's, it's such a beautiful thing to read, um, to be able to simply read so many different stories and learn about so many different women in so many in different contexts and draw comparisons and connections um, so we're going to talk more about the particular women later, but for now let's talk about uh, the work and life of Elizabeth Catlett uh, because you use her work uh, in the cover of this book. So who was she and why did you choose her to be on the cover of the book? Tell us more about her.
3: Elizabeth Catlett was a revelation to us. She, We knew that When we looked at books, at covers of books for histories across the Americas in the early modern period, we saw, you know, what was available, often depictions of women of color by European or Anglo men. And we didn't want that for the cover of our book. And so we started investigating different women artists and we settled on Catlett because she was her art from the very beginning was unapologetically about the power of black women. And she was the granddaughter of enslaved people. Her grew up in Washington, DC, and attended the University of Iowa uh, for her MFA in fine arts, actually worked with uh with Grant Wood there. And the University of Iowa was also my alma mater. And so they had acquired a number of Catlett's prints. uh, And so I went with the curator, Joyce Tai, and looked at the prints. And from that, we selected Mimi. We thought Catlett was ideal for the cover um, because although she grew up and studied in the United States, uh, she wanted to work with social realist and activist artists and moved to Mexico City to do that in the 1940s. And so she is facing, I think, in both directions of the American hemisphere, both toward the north and also toward the south. And her art, as I said before, is always about black and indigenous women or largely uh, captures the images of black and indigenous women. And the cover of of our book is Mimi. Uh, It's a print that Elizabeth Catlett made in the 1990s, I believe, um, a Mimi is Catlett's granddaughter. Um, and we thought that was perfect for our book because it captures how so many of the women in our collection created freedom not just for themselves, but for their progeny. So that their progeny, their descendants, had the ability to enjoy and devote their lives to the things that most mattered to them.
0: Yeah, and I believe this... Uh, speaks very well to the fact that, as you very clearly say in the introduction, this is a new feminist history of freedom. And this choice of, of the cover clearly, you know, tell us that as well. So tell us how feminism and a feminist perspective changes the history of emancipation in the Americas. So in other words, how is feminism influencing your historical approach and the storytelling in this book? Um, yeah, i'll I'll start here. Um I think we had
1: a a couple of things sort of shaping us in a shaping our perspective in our in in our initial approach to to this to this book and and one was as as scholars of 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 the history of of slavery, you know, we we understood that slavery itself was a, a gendered phenomenon. And so then the question became, well, if if slavery is a gendered phenomenon, in what ways is is freedom was freedom also or emancipation also a a, a gendered phenomenon? How did women ex- experience um, e- emancipation? Did they do so differently? In what way? In what way was it the same? How did they you know shift the the meaning of it? So so that that was sort of at the the, the front of our minds from the beginning. And then I would say uh, speaking speaking for for, for myself, but I, I'm sure Terry and Tatiana could w- would agree and, and might expand on this. Um, one of the things that I, that I learned, you know, back when I was a student um, was that the, you know, part of a, a, a feminist intellectual project is not just to kind of add women and, and stir, right, to the, the historical narrative, but, but a real understanding that when you center the experiences of of women, when you center the experiences of people of African descent, you actually change the the historical narrative in a fundamental way. Things shift and things things look different. And and that um uh to us is is part of um uh, part and parcel of a of uh, a feminist approach to historical scholarship. So that was also um, animating us, uh, all three of us, from the beginning of the project.
2: You know, um,
1: Terry and Tatiana, did you want to follow up on that?
2: Yeah. Um, in terms of feminism, I equate that with collaboration. To me, that's one of the synonyms of feminism is to, to collaborate, to change the methodology of people only working individually to begin to work more with other other people to create a bigger whole. And so collaboration for this project has meant that Erica, Terry and I have worked so closely that we can barely tell what where our ideas come from. It's almost like we're talking and then our ideas um, come from just talking. And when we write the things that we've produced, say the introduction or we wrote an op-ed, all of that has been by thinking together kind of a collaborative um, imagination that draws out historical answers. So that's one part of the collaboration, the three of us as editors working together, but there was also such close collaboration um, with us and the authors. And that was also a very feminist way of of working. And I'll let I'll let Terry follow up on that um, how we interacted with the authors. But one more thing about this being a feminist project is that it, it became clear very early on that we wanted only women to to be part um, of the project. And this is somewhat of a, of a delicate thing to say, perhaps, because we know that we have, you know, feminist um, male friends and colleagues who are writing super important work about African-descended women across the Americas. But for this project, we wanted to center the experiences of women, not only as historical subjects, but to center the experience of women historians. So that was, I think, in, in some way, uh, a, a feminist choice.
3: And to Erica's discussion of how we reconceptualize the history of slavery from a feminist viewpoint and the collaboration that Tatiana has talked about, I would also add that the, the way in which we saw this project is always speaking to the present. So making, making the history of women across the Americas and their fight To claim freedom in the various ways that they fought to do so also matters to the present. Right, we see that animating feminist activists today, and so I think part of the feminist vision of of the book is in lies in its the way it changes the way we think about history and emancipation, the way we embrace collaboration, but also the way we speak to the present moment and meets like in movements like say her name and me too. And about the collaboration, um, Tatiana asked me to speak a little bit more about that. I can't find a sentence in, in the introduction that I can say. That is my sentence. Uh, Tatiana, Erica, and I literally wrote the introduction together over Skype. We also read each contribution, met with each of the authors to discuss their contributions, again, over Skype, that, old, that old-fashioned um, <laughs> <laughs> communication mode, and um, listened to their responses. We did the copy editing together. This was not a project, and I don't think it could have come out to be the book it came out to be if we had just say, okay, I'll take the first 10, you take the middle 10, I'll take the next 10, right? We didn't divide it up. It was always all of us together working on both the material we submitted and the materials that all of our authors submitted. And I think that collective spirit is part of the feminist spirit that animated the volume as well.
0: Yeah, and I, I love this. I love to hear how you wrote this. It's such a testament to what you're trying to do with the historical subjects. You're doing that as well as historians. I love that it's a great model for for all of those, like me, that want to do feminist history as well. So uh, from from what you just said, freedom emerges as a very important word, concept in, in your book. So what is freedom then for you as editors and for the authors of these chapters? I know this is a question with no absolute answers and you grapple with, the meaning of freedom throughout the introduction and the authors do the same in their individual chapters. So I wonder here if maybe you can speak about the five questions you ask the authors to address. Uh, Why did you ask the authors to explicitly address these questions in their individual chapters and why were they essential for the collective biography you wanted to construct? Thank you. I will will take those questions
3: sort of in reverse order. We use the five questions. Um, what is freedom? How did each woman claim freedom? What were her obstacles? Um, how did she define freedom? We use those five questions to create coherence across all of the chapters so that you could read chapter one or you could read chapter 24 and each author would be addressing those five sets of questions. And that gave the collective biography its collectivity, or at least it was another element in making it truly collective. But the question of what is freedom was a big issue that our authors grappled with, and we did as well. And one of the ways we talk about freedom in the introduction is to define it as capacious, right? We don't in in the particularly in the, in the in a linchpin moment, right? In the age of revolutions in the Atlantic and in the Americas, freedom is defined in very as kind of a self-evident concept. It is the opposite of slavery. Freedom also brings with it rights, rights to own property, sometimes people as property. Freedom is gendered in this period. Only white men and women can own property in people in British North America, for instance. So then freedom gets defined in the a- age of revolutions as a constellation of rights, right? right? rights of ownership. And so we see that traditionally how we define freedom for enslaved people, how do you obtain freedom? Through manumission, right? Through self-purchase perhaps, that these are, these are very much tied to that legal idea of freedom. But what we argue in the book is that women conceptualize freedom so much more widely than that. Their, their idea of freedom is, uh, you know, in, in 1820, are you seeking freedom as an enslaved woman to get the vote? That's not your main aim, right? That's not necessarily in your trajectory. But you might be seeking freedom to better conditions for your communities and to better conditions and possibilities for your family, just as we talked about Elizabeth Catlett doing as a free woman in the mid-20th century. So when we look at our authors, they define freedom in very different ways. Freedom might be a spiritual escape. Aisha Finch, one of our authors, writes about using religion and spirituality as a fleeting way to experience or embody a kind of freedom. We also see women, Sophie White writes about an enslaved woman who runs an underground economy, a way of sustaining the bodies and the souls of the enslaved people around her that confers a kind of freedom, an experiential freedom, right? Women find freedom through the courts. Sometimes they are freed um, through legal means, but sometimes they may go to courts, as Tamara Walker writes, uh, simply to get a new enslaver, a new master, to improve their conditions. Um,
1: can I jump in for a second, Terry and Tatiana and, Please. and Lizette? Please, I- because I think what you were just saying, Terry, kind of points us back to, to an earlier question, uh, posed by Lizette about, about, you know, feminist practice, right? All of the, this capacious interpretation of freedom that you're, you're describing, Terry, that, that we found in, in the book, that we, that we show in the book asks us to reconceptualize what freedom is, right? Terry, you just sort of explained that freedom as a concept has been understood in, in masculine terms, right? To, to be free is to have land. To be free is to have property. To be free is to own others, uh, human beings, right? To be free, allowed To be free is to be a head of household with dependents, right? All of these, this, this is attached to the notion of, of freedom and, and independence and property and status, right? And this is often, I mean, this has been reproduced in the scholarship on emancipation, right? And, uh, you know, uh, there's, there's an emphasis, there's a, there's an emphasis in the historiography of, of, you know, of defining emancipation, at at least in, in terms of, of North America, of, of looking primarily, uh, toward, uh, the acquisition of land, uh, wage labor, uh, access to the political process, all of which are super important, right? But, in our efforts to, to engage in kind of feminist historical praxis and, and reframe the, the terms of the conversation, reframe our understanding, um, I think what we've what we've done is we've expanded the the definition of what freedom can mean, could mean, should mean, and and hopefully raise a, a series of, of questions for other scholars to, to continue to pursue.
2: And I'll add that. We learned so much from our authors who who took these questions to heart and grappled with very difficult aspects of these women's lives, you know, difficult from our perspective, not from their own. But, you know, several of the women in this book owned other people. And to be able to explain that and give context and understand an economy based on slavery that is something that you know we can think of only through the experience of individual people and our authors you know, were able to do that and i think that gives us insight into the perfidiousness the the way that one could not escape legal structures that uplifted an economy based on owning other people. So that was, you know something that really s- struck me um, was the, the the bravery of our authors in in talking about freedom in in the context of of a slave economy.
3: I think that's a really good point, Tatiana. And I would say, one of the things this volume taught us to do was to allow the subjects to define for us what freedom meant rather than to impose right an existing definition of freedom upon them. That's what we learned by looking at these 24 stories.
0: That's right. That's right. Yeah, so and this is wonderful. This is one of the things as readers that we learn reading the book how freedom uh, doesn't mean just this specific thing, but how freedom meant different things for different people in different contexts. And this is a great thing that our listeners uh, will, will learn when they go and buy the book and read the chapters. Um, so let's talk about the chapters and how they're organized. So you organize the chapters chronologically, but they share thematic links. And you particularly highlight key concepts of women's expressions of freedom, so care for and defense of self, family, and community. Uh, tell us more about the chapters and those thematic links that you found between the chapters. Um,
1: yeah, so this was this was tricky. This this may have been one of the trickiest parts of of, of editing this this. Collective biography. I mean, in in my memory, we went we went back and forth quite a bit uh, about how to best organize the the volume. We had all of these stories. A number of thematic connections were apparent, and it, it felt like we could we could arrange and rearrange them in a in a variety of ways. I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, we settled on on chronology because we are all historians, and the, the march of time. Holds us together, and so we ended up um, just for a large uh, organizing, an overarching organizing structure. We we began with the 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 rise of of new world slavery, like what it meant to to claim emancipation in that context, and then the second part really focuses on how women experienced freedom in the context of slavery's expansion. Uh, the third part really focuses in on the first half of the 19th century, um, the rise of, of second slavery. And, uh, and the final portion of the, the book details the experiences of, of women who grapple with, with freedom and emancipation in the aftermath of the abolition of, of slavery, when when the effects of, of slavery, uh, its afterlives, right, continue to to linger. Uh, What does freedom mean in that context is really the question that is that is raised. So that's the big organizing structure of the volume. But within that, so many thematic connections in terms of family, uh, community, um, activism, entrepreneurship, uh, religiosity, um, legal structures of power. So that's what I'll say to set the stage and and, um, see if Terry and, and Tatiana want to follow up.
2: Yeah, in terms of the timeline, I think I, I like the idea of a simple chronology from the beginning because we are historians. We account for change over time. So chronology is always the obvious. But I think as we all read the chapters, something that we wanted to, to be apparent was that It did not matter whether the person lived in the 1600s or in the late 1800s. These women lived the same obstacles, right? Overcame what we now call white supremacy practices. And I, pointing to chronology, right? You see that things sometimes don't change at all.
3: So I'll return to the idea of the themes then, because I think Tatiana and Erica have talked about the chronology and yes, we are in the end, we did mess around with table of contents four or five or six times. I think we went through six drafts and we finally remembered that we were historians and, and change over time was what we are wed to and what we believe is important in our scholarship. I think thematically though, For me, one of the biggest takeaways of the volume is that the freedom, seeking freedom, claiming freedom, acting as if you are free never occurs in a vacuum. That women claimed freedom even in court armed with witnesses from their communities. I'm thinking of Bessie Chambers in Jamaica as probably the most obvious example of that. But it's not just that members of the enslaved community or free black community came in and supported women claiming freedom in the courts as witnesses. But more than that, that there was a knowledge about, or a a sense, perhaps an experience about what it meant to be free that was collectively forged, I think, and supported by other members of the enslaved and free black communities. And so it's that when you think of freedom, we often, in the United States today, we think of it as a, an, an I, right? It's an I constructive. I am free. But when I look back over these essays, I can see that individual freedom is not necessarily the main point. It may be a goal for some of these women. Um, and it certainly doesn't happen without a collective community in support. Of that freedom.
0: So, one of the things I really loved about your introduction, and I really want to flag this to our listeners, is that in order to make a statement about the centrality of these women's lives, that you know it's in tune with the feminist commitments behind this work, um, is that in the introduction you refer to the subjects rather than the historians who authored the chapters, and you you kind of tell us about their stories. And this is a very unusual way to write an introduction for an edited collection. So I guess a way to honor that choice that you made that I thought it was beautiful and effective, uh, and I really loved it. I think we can move on and talk about some of the biographies that we as readers encounter in the book. So you have mentioned this already, but one of the things that emerges is that uh, comparatively, it was rare for women to seek freedom only for themselves. So women acted as if they were free by protecting uh, their families and communities. Can you perhaps speak of cases that exemplify this?
3: I'll go first. So I am thinking of a woman named Raitori Angola, who was born in Angola and brought um, to North America, brought to New Amsterdam, controlled at that time by the Dutch, sometime between 1626 and 1640. So this is relatively early for our volume, one of the early stories Now, she was, Ray Tory was brought to New Amsterdam as an enslaved woman. She eventually married an enslaved man. And for her, as the author of the piece writes, freedom meant the ability to snatch children out of the jaws of enslavement. So how did, how did Ray Tory do this? And Susanna Shaw Romney chronicles this story beautifully. Ray Tory claimed freedom in a number of ways. One through her labor, um, second, by participating in the church and becoming a spiritual godmother. And in this position, she stood as a witness to a baptism of a young man, of a young of an infant male whose mother subsequently died. And as Ray Tory goes through her life, laboring for the Dutch West India Company, uh, marrying. And then going before the company where she and her husband are given a kind of conditional freedom, this adopted son remains with her. Her own children, she bears children. We're not sure how many will die, but the son remains with her. When she and her husband are given a kind of conditional freedom, they know, she knows that she sees it as this opportunity. So she petitions the governor and the council of New Amsterdam to have The adopted son, who is named Anthony's freedom, recognized by official document as her own freedom and that of her husband were not. So in her mind, freedom only deserved the name of freedom if the children could stand to inherit the property that Ray Torrey and her husband had built through their lives. And in a sense, and and Susanna Shah Romney makes this really important remark. Conferring freedom on Anthony, obtaining freedom for him, a written record, which was essential at this time, also, in a sense, re- freed Ritori's own body. It finally, after years, gave her ownership over progeny, even if this progeny was adopted. So I think that's a really important and moving story about how claiming freedom is actually family oriented.
2: Okay, um, I'll follow up on that. By talking about Ana Maria López de Brito, uh, a woman whose life comes to us through the, through the work of historian Mariana Dantas. Ana Maria was um, born in Africa, like Reitoria Angola. And she, she made her life in, in what is now Brazil, living from, for many decades in the region of Minas Gerais. Ana Maria had a brilliant legal mind and understanding of the documentation that is required to pass on what you are able to acquire over the course of your life. So Ana Maria acquired manumission. She also slowly acquired property and she wanted to ensure that after she passed, that her children would be able to inherit the property and live full lives. So she used what are like legal documents, a testament and a will in order to ensure that her property would remain undivided, at least for the immediate time after her death, so that it wouldn't be broken up and lose its value. And so she she made it so that her husband kept the property together until her children came of age, and at which point um, the property was divided. And in this way, she was able to make sure that what she had worked so hard to do during her life, which was to, to collect a certain level of capital, that that was able to pass on to her children, her children all of whom were free. And um, I, I'd like to, to, re, to
1: return to uh, the story of a, a woman that, Terry mentioned um a few questions earlier and that's the story of Bessie Chambers a woman who uh, lived in Jamaica in the the early 19th century and her story is is recounted in in our volume it's told by uh uh Sasha Turner and uh uh Bessie Bessie Chambers in 1823 Bessie Chambers goes to court and files a complaint against her uh the overseer on the estate where she works, um, labors and is owned and, uh, charges the overseer with overwork and mistreatment, um, mistreatment severe enough that it caused her to, um, to miscarry. Um, when, when Bessie Chambers went to court to, to file this complaint, she didn't do this, this alone. Um, she did this, uh, in the company of, of twenty-four other enslaved people who came with her to to support her and, and to support her her claim, this is one of of hundreds hundreds of such complaints in this this period, most of which are are, are dismissed. But Sasha Turner argues that that this case um, illustrates. Just how uh, thoughtful and and aware these women were. They 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 not only had had a clear sense of of the law and what should be available to them in terms of of, of justice, but they also had a sense of of the arguments that are being made um, across the Atlantic um, in Britain arguments that are are placed in the service of of the abolitionist movement. And as women uh, going into court, showing how they were being mistreatment, mistreated and the results of of that mistreatment, they are are tapping into to this this abolitionist rhetoric, but also transforming it and and bending it um, to their own needs in an effort to to obtain some kind of bodily I- integrity and safety. In addition to to justice, and this is not an individual effort. This is a, a community effort, um, and this is this story is is an example of this larger
0: endeavor. But yet, uh, women also acted uh, acted as they were free, but making certain choices about the identities. They claim so at times as you tell us in the book, they distance themselves from associations with their African ancestry. Can you perhaps tell us a little bit about some of these women?
3: So, yes, your question is an an important one, I think, Lisette. And I'm thinking about Honor Sachs' contribution on Judith and Hannah. And she focuses on a woman we know only, As Judith, who was an Appalachian, was part of the Appalachian community in Florida, was taken as an enslaved indigenous person and as a captive in the wars in 1704. Judith sold up the north, up the eastern seaboard through South Carolina, ends up in Virginia. And Sachs's chapter focuses on Judith and her daughter Hannah. And Hannah eventually will file a suit in the local court claiming her freedom. And she claims her freedom on the basis of genealogies that were kept orally and often through the female by by female members of the family. And and so Hannah's claim is that she is free because her mother, Judith. Was indigenous. The law on indigenous slavery shifts in different jurisdictions, but at that point in Virginia, slaves could not descend from indigenous women. Um, And so generations of Judith's descendants will file suits claiming their freedom in the courts. Um, The question is raised about paternity were the fathers white? Were the fathers black? Were the fathers indigenous? Um, But for the elite, in a strictly legal sense, all that mattered was Judith's identity as an indigenous woman. So one can claim freedom, right, if one can show one is descended from an indigenous woman. But what that does, of course, is then hardens the boundary uh, between, or the barrier really, between blackness and freedom. And what it also does is racializes slavery so that it becomes um, associated with. Blacks, and it distances indigenous communities from slavery at the same time.
1: Yeah, um, a- another example of this this phenomenon is um, is um, the story of, of Elizabeth Key, and uh, her her story is probably very well, fairly well known to to folks who specialize in seventeenth century um, North American history. But but Elizabeth Key, uh, a woman of African descent. Um, toiling in 17th century Virginia at a moment where most of the the people in the colony, something like 80 percent of the folks are are unfree, um, and most of those who are unfree are are in, indentured servants um, um, from England. Um, and at this moment, uh, Elizabeth Key, the daughter of of an African woman or a woman of African descent and an Englishman finds herself destined for lifetime enslavement when her owner dies and includes her as a part of, of his estate. Um, and so she, she has to think about her future and she has to think about what that, you know, you know um, the, the possibilities for her. She has to think about what this means for, for the father of her child who's a former indentured servant named, um, William Grimstead and, Together, she sues for her freedom, this is in 1655 or 56, uh, on the grounds that she was not and could not be enslaved because her father was was an Englishman, making her an English subject, and then on other grounds, including that she was actually an indentured servant whose term had expired, right? At the end of the day, um, after the case bounces through the courts a bit, she wins her her freedom suit, right It's a great example of an early freedom suit and um, one of many taking place in that that period And while other uh, Africans of people of African descent might sue on the grounds that for example they'd converted to Christianity or or something like that, she chose to make her claim on the grounds of her her English ancestry um, gains her freedom, marries her legal representative um, uh, Grimstead. Uh, And the legislature, uh, responds fairly, fairly quickly, um, in 1662, codifying the, the idea that the, the practice that the status follows that of the mother, right? Part of sequitur ventrum. Um, an enslaved mother gives birth to enslaved, uh, children. And that solidifies a key feature of, of slavery.
2: And I will add that this phenomenon that Erica and Terry have, have talked about, about the, the hardening of the racial lines in the 1600s across the Americas is something that you, know, you, see, you see everywhere. In the context of the Spanish Empire, we all know that The crown made huge claims about indigenous people not being enslavable, you know, from the 1500s. And yet, through various clauses and exceptions, indigenous uh, men and women, you know, from Mexico to Argentina and Chile were, were enslaved, sold as property. And it wasn't until, unarguably so, until about the 1670s, at the same time as the racialization is happening in Virginia, that we have uh, once again the Crown insisting that Indigenous people cannot be enslaved. And what that leaves on the ground is that by default, it's only people of African descent who are enslavable. The exception was also for people of Asian descent. So Asian descended people, Indigenous descended people are no longer legally enslavable. And that what that leaves in its stead is that only people of African descent can be human chattel. So this has grave consequences in, in the centuries that follow, um, both for people who try to achieve their freedom through the courts. It also has kind of other ramifications, and that you can see in the chapter um, by Sabrina Smith about Juana Ramirez, uh, a woman of mixed Indigenous and African ancestry who lived in um, what is now the state of Oaxaca, who who made a living, who who moved to Oaxaca City, and and it was there that at one point she's accused of witchcraft by busybody neighbors. And when the Inquisition tries to come after her, she claims very strongly that she is an indigenous person in order to not be able to be prosecuted by the Inquisition because from the very beginning of the of the tribunals in, in the Spanish-American world, the Inquisition could not go after indigenous people. They could only go after people of African-Asian and European descent. So she made that choice. She, she, she foregrounded her indigenous identity in order to not be, you know, prosecuted by, by the Inquisition for her so-called, you know, witchcraft. So I think that's an example of how the, the hardening of racial lines and, and the division of courts, um, based on people's ethnicity and legal status is something that has consequences, you know, for how people are able to maneuver their way to be able to, to live freely.
0: And yet there were women also, very differently than the women we just talked about, um, who, for whom freedom men participated in the abolitionist movement, uh, serving on troops, or perhaps rising up against white elites after the abolition of slavery. So do you want to tell us a little bit about these stories and these women? Uh, sure,
1: sure. I'll I'll go, and I and I would say that um, yeah, there there are a, a number of these stories as well, especially um, when when we get into the, the 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 second half of the the volume. Um, one that that is a special favorite s- story of mine, um, is the story of of Mary Ellen Pleasant, um, uh, brought to us by um our author Kelly Carter Jackson, and. Mary Ellen Pleasant uh, was a, a free black woman in uh, living in the first half of the 19th century in the United States. Uh, in the early 1850s she moves to to California. Um and she's there she's living in northern California like in the context of of the gold rush and she's able to to capitalize Uh, On the gold rush, uh, she becomes a a caterer, uh, preparing meals for all of those, uh, often primarily men who were there uh, in search of of wealth and a dream, Uh, a a boarding house operator, um, uh, an investor, a banker, a lender, right? And fairly quickly, uh, she she becomes uh, extremely wealthy. Which is a form of of freedom, right, and 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 independence. Um, remember, where the United States is still a, a slave holding republic at this moment, and and here she is, a free black woman uh, of wealth, of, of means, um, and that would have been a great story on it on its own, right? Um, but she thinks of this that as something. Her wealth is not just for her, right? Her her freedom and independence is not. Just for her, and and this is something that's a hallmark of the the free black population in the United States at this time. Um, Mary Ellen Pleasant is committed to the black freedom struggle, to the collective freedom struggle. She's she's rooted in the the black abolitionist community, and she becomes a a, a leading funder, the the uh, biggest contributor, in fact, to uh, John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry right the the raid that some people believe the failed raid that some people believe was actually the first shot of the the civil war Um, uh, later sort of, uh, during the civil war and then after the civil war, she's involved in, in campaigns to, to make it possible for black people to testify in California courts. Um, in 1866, she files a a lawsuit that, that ultimately ends up desegregating San Francisco's public transportation. And, and for these reasons, she is, she's known as the, the mother of, of civil rights in the state of California. Um. Now she is increasingly remembered. Um, there's actually a, a plaque in her honor uh, that is on the land where her house used to, to stand. It's no longer there. And uh, along with trees that, that she planted, eucalyptus trees that are still there. It's uh, a park, it's a city park. Technically, it's the smallest park in the city of, California, of, of, um, of San Francisco, but it is there. Um, And so she is, she is remembered.
3: And someone who follows sort of in the footsteps of Mary Ellen Pleasant is a woman named Carrie Clifford, who was born in Ohio in 1862. Um, In our, our, in our volume, Kathleen Cahill takes up her stories. Clifford was very active during reconstruction and watched the erosion of black rights that occurred wholesale during that period. She took up her role. Really, as a as a as an intellectual and an activist, um, she wrote poetry, she wrote journalism, and plays, and in all of these, and she also wrote history. In all of these, she highlights the ways in which what she she highlights her understanding that blacks had been excluded from the nation's history, but she was part of a generation of historians, of black historians, who were committed. To telling, to to offering the history and telling, the about the historical experiences of Black Americans, and in her poetry and her journalism, you often see that she is highlighting the histories of, in particular, Black women. Although she was, we associate Clifford um, as Cahill writes about her with a politics of respectability. She does raise uncomfortable issues um, for. Americans to consider, right? Who has the power to, to tell the story of the nation's past and what version of that story do you offer? Um, she raises issues about interracial sex, um, as well in her, in her work. Um, and, and all of her work from her poetry to her journalism to her history, I think was expressly political, um, and was expressly devoted to resisting the false narrative of, of U.S. history that had been put forward um, by the nation's official historians and academics. So she, hers, hers, along with Mary Ellen Pleasant, hers is Clifford's is a very compelling story for readers
0: to consider. Yeah, and this is just a little sample of, of those beautiful stories uh, we find in the book. Uh, beautiful, heartbreaking, many, many different things. And so we unfortunately cannot cover all the biographies. So this is why I encourage listeners to go and buy this book because there's so many things they can learn. Uh, We can all learn from, from this book. So just to round up the discussion of the book, tell us more about how this book speaks and matters to the present. You have mentioned this, alluded to this question in different answers you have given me, but in the acknowledgements, you say that three social movements, Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter, and Say Her Name, sustain and inspire this effort. So how, can you perhaps speak about the relationship between the, pre- the present, the past, and how we remember or memorialize the past today? Yes,
3: I'd love to. That I mean, it's exciting. Some of the women who are discussed In our volume, and Erica just talked about this in terms of Mary Ellen Pleasant. Some of them, their memories are being revitalized. Actually, Mary Ellen Pleasant, it was right in the 1960s, correct me if I'm wrong, Erica, that the San Francisco African American History Society erected that plaque to her. So as you said, her community knew about her work for a long time. But even more recently, in our own time, some of the women who are written about in these chapters are remembered. Um, For instance, Maria Fermina, who was an abolitionist novelist in 19th century Brazil, was memorialized in 2013 in a rap song. And I apologize to your listeners, I've opened my book. Um, but I'd like to read a stanza from that song for you. Uh, Fermina the, the the stanza goes like this: I'm a brother from around the way. I'm a sister from the slum. I'm all those who struggled for a world without want. I'm a brother with attitude. I'm a stand-up sister. The blacks heroes are blacks like Cosme and Fermina. So she is memorialized in a in a rap a rap song in Brazil and another of. Uh, Subject of one of our chapters, uh, a woman named Lumina Sophie, who led an uprising in Martinique in 1807, is now sort of her name is promoted by the feminist uh, union of Martinique. She she was also the subject of a play that was produced in 2000 by Suzanne Dracius, And I think the play was called Sophie and Surprise, uh, which was an- another name that she went by. Um, and so she's become very popular, well-known. High schools are named for her in Martinique. That's really, I think that's that's very energizing for all of us as historians and as feminists to see that these women are, who, who have never been forgotten in their own communities, I'd like to add, but are now becoming the focus of more national inten- attention. Um, and their memories, their stories are included as part of the national story, we have much more work to do on this front, but I find it very exciting that that work has begun.
1: And um, and and I'll just add um, in in light of the the social movements and the protest movements and and the the fights um, for against in the battle against injustices in that that are are very visible in, in our current moment, the, the stories in our, our volume, these 24 different, different stories, they, they remind us that so many women of African descent have, have been through this before, um, sexual violence, political violence, um, uh, political terrorism. Right. And so for me, it, it reinforces, um, uh, two, two, two facts. One, um, this is a long freedom struggle that, that people of African descent have, have been engaged in. It's a one that goes across us uh, centuries and across national and, um, imperial boundaries, right? Across space and across time. But these are, are people who have always been agents, right. Who have fought for, for change in their own lives and their own families in their own communities. And, and that to me is, is a usable history. Um, it's what we need to know to, to keep up the good fight in, in our, our current moment. And so in that way, um, these are stories that inspire. And I think connecting back to, to Terry's point, um, uh, it, this may be one of the reasons that they're, um, beginning to I- enjoy uh, more of a, um, a, a national, national prominence um, in the 21st century.
0: Um, so lastly, and I promise this is the last question before I let you go. So tell us what you're all working on right now. What are your future projects?
2: Well, I'll go and I'll say that right now um, I am working on a book called Global Mexico City in the 17th Century which is about the local economy and how people hustled and did everything that they could to to live lives with some level of comfort and, and social status. And m- many, maybe more than three quarters of the people that I write about are people of African descent. So that's one of the projects that I'm working on. And also have to say that I've been thinking a lot about what I learned by by being part of this collaborative project. And I would like to to write an article one day in this fashion, Um, an article that brings together um, documentation that I have and documentation that other people have to write to write more biographies, um, I think that the biographical format allows for for collaboration, and I'd like to. I look forward to doing that someday. I did it once with my friend um, and colleague Pablo Sierra. We wrote an article about uh, the persistence of the slave market in Mexico City, um, but I'd like to to do that again to repeat that process um to do to do biographies cuz i think that articles are a way to to deliver history in you know kind of shorter in a shorter fashion than in a, a book project
1: okay all right um what what am i working on well um speaking of biography uh i i just published uh as in as in my author copies just arrived um this week, uh, a, a brief cultural biography of of Madame C. J. Walker, the um, the hair care pioneer, um, a woman, as it happens, who was born uh, immediately after emancipation in the United States. So, so our project was was on my mind as um, as we were finishing that book. And this biography of Madame C. J. Walker ends with with a discussion of how. Black Americans in the United States have have remembered um, Walker. Um, I've, I've long been interested in the ways that African Americans engage history and memory, and I think that that is I'm, I'm not I think I I now I know, <laughs> but I'm I'm planning that to to have my next project um, be about about history and memory, um, specifically the 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 ways that African Americans have have engaged the the history and the memory of of slavery um in an intentional and and purposeful way and i'm calling this this project slavery in the american emancipation in american imagination and i'm really focusing on black americans ongoing efforts over the course of the 20th century to commemorate emancipation to honor abolitionists um to push back against the construction of pro slavery pro confederate public memory, and to tell their own stories of slavery and emancipation. Because as I see it, especially in in the wake of all of these, these statues coming down uh, this summer, the nation may have come to a sudden realization that there's a counter-narrative about the history of, of slavery, that the Confederate memory of slavery isn't the only memory. But this is a story that Black Americans have been telling for a long time. Um, it's really a contest that's played out Um, on the battlefield of of, um, popular culture. And so that is the story that I'm I'm planning to tell next.
3: That's great, Erica. I'm working on a biography. It's interesting that both Erica and Tatiana talk about the importance of biography in their own scholarship. And um, certainly biography is uh, part of what I am working on now and probably will take up my attention for the next um, years to come. I'm working on a actually a biography of a family uh, in a study of, of that I call "Claiming Liberty." I look at sort of a family that's formed on the eastern shore of Virginia when a free black woman marries an enslaved man, and I follow because she is free and he is enslaved. She is the legal face of their family, and I follow the children uh, born to this family as they mature and migrate across the eastern seaboard as a way of exploring um, changing meanings of freedom and emancipation, something that's very close to the heart of as if she were free. I'm also interested in the politics of history and memory as well. Um, as part of this biography, um, which I've been working on for a while, I've been contacted by descendants. So their voices and their memories also will form a part of the book. Uh, about how they remember their family and their family's history of
0: claiming freedom. Great. So thank you for that. And for your work, both of you, the three of you, Tatiana is up here. (laughs) So thank you for, thank you for talking to me
1: today. Thank you so much for having us and and organizing this. This is, this is really fantastic. It's my first podcast. It's been great. Awesome. (laughs)